Some principles are so universally true that you can find them in many different religions and in many different books. Take the golden rule, for example, Matthew 7 and 12. This is what Matthew 7, 12 says. So in everything, do to others what you would have them do to you, for this sums up the law and the prophets. But you can find roughly that same comment in other religions. Treat others as you would like others to treat you. Or as Confucius says, do not treat others in ways that you would not like to be treated. Or as another prophet so-called says, what you wish on others, you wish upon yourself. The positive version we get from Jesus is superior to the previous statements because the positive statement requires the followers of Jesus to actually do something rather than just passively avoid evil. But there are some folks who think that if Buddha or Confucius says something, it must necessarily be wrong. But even though they talk about the golden rule, Jesus affirms the universality of these kinds of statements. I heard an interesting story recently. There was a pastor who recommended a particular Christian book for his church board to read along with him. The next week, one of the ladies from the board made an appointment to see him. She said, if you are going to insist that the board read this new age garbage, I am going to resign and leave the church. What was the garbage referred to by the woman? Well, there were several places in the book where that very Christian author quoted sayings from other religions that were also in Christianity. She was trying to make the point that certain truths were so self-evident that even human religions from different cultures knew that they were true. After all, all truth is God's truth. And so it shouldn't surprise us if others notice what Jehovah is doing and has done and affirm it to be true. The woman in the story just didn't understand what the author was trying to do. Or worse, she may have just read some half-baked opinion of the book on the internet instead of reading the book herself. The truth we are going to unravel this morning is one of those kinds of truths. It will take a little work to get at, but the truth, this particular truth, is a bedrock teaching about the use of our resources and the obligations of Christians when it comes to the use of our resources, especially monetary resources. And at a very deep level, this sermon is about fellowship. This is Luke 16, beginning with verse one. Luke 16, beginning with verse one. And since this is the gospel of our Lord and Jesus Christ, I invite you to stand for the reading. Luke 16, 1. Jesus told his disciples, there was a rich man whose manager was accused of wasting his possessions. So he called him in and asked him, 
What is this I hear about you? Give an account of your management because you cannot be manager any longer. The manager said to himself, what shall I do now? My master is taking away my job. I'm not strong enough to dig and I'm ashamed to beg. I know what I'll do so that when I lose my job here, people will welcome me into their houses. So he called in each one of his master's debtors. He asked the first, how much do you owe my master? 900 gallons of olive oil, he replied. The manager told him, take your bill, sit down quickly and make it 450. Then he asked the second, and how much do you owe? A thousand bushels of wheat, he replied. He told him, take your bill and make it 800. The master commended the dishonest manager because he had acted shrewdly. For the people of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own kind than are the people of the light. I tell you, use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourselves so that when it is gone, you will be welcomed into eternal dwellings. Whoever can be trusted with very little can also be trusted with much. And whoever is dishonest with very little will also be dishonest with much. So if you have not been trustworthy in handling worldly wealth, who will trust you with true riches? And if you have not been trustworthy with someone else's property, who will give you property of your own? No one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. The Pharisees, who loved money, heard all of this and were sneering at Jesus. He said to them, you are the ones who justify yourselves in the eyes of others, but God knows your hearts. What people value highly is detestable in God's sight. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. This is a complicated passage to understand. And, and the complication is simply this. Why does it seem that Jesus is commending a man for being shrewd? And is he actually doing that if we read the passage closely? I think if you look very closely at the way the words are written here, we can see that something other than that is what's happening. Something different is what Jesus is trying to say. The story itself continues right through the sentence where Jesus tells us that the master, the owner, is the one commending the manager for his shrewdness. And in fact, Jesus observes that this manager is well equipped to deal with the people of the world since the manager in the story is one of them. What is it that the master acknowledges as shrewd? Well, first of all, by rewriting the debt notices, the manager creates a future for himself. He has used his position to make friends, and friends can open all kinds of doors for him, and in fact, might even house him if he gets desperate. He has leveraged his position to make friends for himself. 
Second, he has done this debt reduction thing in a way that the master has no way of litigating in court. There's no, new, there's no old paper trail. The documents have all been rewritten. The manager uses his authority to rewrite the current state of affairs. You should note that the manager hasn't been accused of dishonesty previously. He has simply been accused of being wasteful. I mean, if he had been accused of dishonesty, he would have been immediately arrested and removed from the position. But he's been allowed to continue his work so that he could prepare for a new manager to take his job. That wasn't probably very wise on the part of the owner. In this case, the manager seems to be more shrewd than the owner. Some commentators believe that the manager really didn't do anything unlawful in rewriting the debt. Some think that the rewriting of the loans was to remove the interest that the owner was charging, remembering that interest in the Jewish culture was illegal. Jews were not allowed to charge interest on loans, but they were doing it at this time. And some commentators think that the guy who was the manager was charging additional amounts to cover his cost in collecting the loans. And that maybe this manager simply took off the illegal interest and took off his commission and, and cut the, the loans back to what they originally were. We don't have any way of knowing that. And we don't really know if this manager was completely breaking the law or was just being wise and shrewd. But in any event, the manager understands his position, he understands his future, and he has plans, he executes his plan, so that in both cases, he has friends to help secure his future. And to all of this, Jesus says, the people of the world are much more shrewd in dealing with their own kind than the people of the light. That's what Jesus is saying. People in the world understand the way the world works. People in the kingdom of God don't seem to understand how things ought to work in the kingdom of God. Kingdom people aren't as wise in their setting as worldly people are wise in worldly settings. Can you see the two different messages? Jesus is not saying that we should be like the people of the world. He's not saying that. Jesus is saying that we should give evidence of wisdom or shrewdness when dealing with the issue of possessions in ways that are consistent with the values of the kingdom of God. You remember Jesus saying, it, it's in Matthew 10, 16, that you should be wise as serpents and harmless as doves. The NIV reads this way, be shrewd as snakes and innocent as doves. So wise, but yet innocent, harmless, gracious, kind. At a very minimum, this is what this passage means. 
Use your wealth to gain friends for yourself. Attract people to yourself through the wise investment of your finances. Use your wealth as an avenue to create friendships here and now so that when you get to heaven, there will be people there to welcome you into heaven for your generosity, compassion, and liberality. I want to come back to that notion in a few minutes, but before we emphasize that particular principle, I want to deal with some other things that Jesus says in the passage. Jesus says in verse 10, whoever can be trusted with very little can also be trusted with much. And whoever is dishonest with very little will also be dishonest with much. So if you have not been trustworthy in handling worldly wealth, who will trust you with true riches? And if you have not been trustworthy with someone else's property, who will give you property of your own? Jesus is laying out criterion for trustworthiness. Accountability is important at every level. Let me say that again. Especially when it comes to finances, accountability is important at every level. In the church, for example, finances must be accounted for. When I spend the church's money, I must submit a receipt so that a record of my spending is available. In case there's any ever question about it, there's a paper trail to follow. From time to time, a volunteer here will squawk about having to submit a receipt for a purchase made in the name of the church. Why are we so careful? First off, we are called to honesty and transparency in all financial matters. We print every year a full disclosure statement of the full financial state of the church. We want to be accountable. We want to be trustworthy in the way we spend the resources of the church. We know that our continuing ability to conduct the business of the church depends on the trust we earn by being responsible and accountable with the things that we have here and now. Isn't that what Jesus says? If you're not trustworthy in small things, who will trust you in large things, right? So we're accountable. This isn't true only in the church, however. It's true in families as well. If one spouse secretly spends the resources of the family on selfish things, or secretly spends the resources of the family on things the other spouse won't support, there will be tension in the marriage and distrust will grow. That distrust will mean that one spouse will no longer trust the other to handle financial matters and this will damage the relationship. This isn't only true in the church, it isn't only true in the, in the family, it's also true in business. It's, in tr it's true where you work. If an employee is not careful with the company's money, in time, this will become known and the employee will lose the owner's trust and may even lose their job. Being careful with resources matters. Jesus is saying that. People who are careful with small amounts will be careful with larger amounts because being careful with resources builds trust. 
But more is being said here. Jesus addresses the issue of the ownership of resources. He wonders, if you aren't trustworthy with the property of others, who will ever give you property of your own? On the surface of it, you may think that Jesus is talking about inheriting property from a parent. This makes some sense. If a, if a child isn't careful with the responsibilities his parent gives him while he's a child, and when I say child, I don't mean a little person. You know, children are children as long as their parents are still alive, right? So this child may be 59, but he's still the child if dad and mom are still alive. And, and if he's gonna inherit from them, he will have to have demonstrated that he is trustworthy in the family business. Otherwise, they'll pick another child or someone else who will appropriately deal with what has to be left behind. There's even more, I think, in this argument than being trustworthy with someone else's possessions. We ought to understand that everything we have is a gift from God the Father. All good gifts come down from heaven. And all that we own is due to his compassion and the God-given ability to work, hold a job, receive income, for the health to do those things. All of those things are gifts from God. And yes, we have to cooperate with those gifts. We still have to work hard. We still have to show up. We still have to do our responsibilities. But we should understand that anything we have is a gift of God. And so, if I understand that all that I have is God's, it means that being faithful with someone else's possessions means being faithful with what God has entrusted to me. In other words, if you don't understand that all of your possessions are on loan to you from the Father, why would God trust you with true wealth? If God looks at the way we spend our resources and says, hmm, you spend all your resources on yourself. Why would I bless you or favor you in ways that I would try to enrich the community through you if the evidence is that you really just invest in yourselves? So why would the blessing of God come to those who hoard the blessing of God. It makes me ask this question. Have you gotten to the place in your Christian walk where when you say Jesus is Lord, you honestly believe that that makes him master of all your possessions and resources? This is what Jesus is driving at here. Are you at the place in your discipleship are you at the place in, in your journey of following Jesus that you honestly believe that all of your resources belong to him and that you are in, accountable to him for how you spend and how you invest and how you use the resources that are on loan to you? Or really at the end of the day, do you still harbor the worldly way of thinking about resources, which is, it's my money, I can do what I want. That's the difference between the two particular positions. 
those who are shrewd with the world's perspective say to themselves, it's my money, I can do what I want. Those who are wise in terms of the kingdom say, there is a kingdom mission and I am responsible to God for the way I invest my resources and Jesus is Lord so he gets to determine the checks I write and the investments I make. And when he speaks to me about a need in someone else or he shows me something that I need to do something about with my finances, he is Lord and I will do as he instructs me to do. Some of us think about money a great deal. Obsessing about money is a common problem for people for people who have a lot of it and for people who do not have enough of it. And the Bible has tons to say about money. But here, Jesus is just saying a very simple thing. Be trustworthy, be responsible, and use your money to enrich the future. How enrich the future? This was verse nine again. I tell you, use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourself so that when it is gone, you will be welcomed into eternal dwellings. Wealth I have here somehow can impact eternal relationships. You can see the shift in the argument, can't you? The shrewd manager was trying to create a future for himself on earth. The shrewd Christian uses his resources to help folks find an eternal home in heaven so that when they arrive in heaven, they will be welcomed with great joy by all those people who now reside in heaven because of the faithfulness of the servants of God here and now. We're supposed to use our resources to draw people to ourselves and through us to the kingdom of God and consequently to draw people to Christ. And that's the plan. That's how we are invited by Jesus to invest our resources here and now. Kingdom investments are what is in mind here. This links to our, our theme verse for the year. Pray that the Lord of the harvest will send laborers into his harvest field. We invest our resources in the harvest by investing in workers and building the workforce and enriching the relationships and caring for those who are around us so that all together we can see the work of this kingdom prosper because Jesus is the Lord who is making it all possible. I think there's a kicker verse here, verse 14, that really makes it all clear. This is what verse 14 says. The Pharisees who love money are sneering at this teaching of Jesus. Pharisees who love money are sneering at Jesus. They're despising Jesus because of what he just said. It's obvious to them that they are not in sync with what Jesus is proclaiming at the moment. And this love of money that Jesus identifies in the Pharisees 
and their idea that only the wealthy are really blessed by God. I mean, that was the prevailing theology of the day. You could, you could look at people, and if they were wealthy, that was the symbol that God had blessed them. And if you looked at people and they were poor, then that was the signal that God had cursed them or that they didn't deserve wealth. And that's how the Pharisees thought about things. If you're wealthy, God favored you. If you were poor, God despised you. And so there was no reason for the Pharisees to care for others because to do that would negate God's work in despising them. And so they just hoarded their money and took care of themselves with it. And Jesus is saying, that is so distasteful. You were not put here to hoard your resources and take care of yourself. You were put here and given opportunities to care for others, to do the right thing for those that are around you, to follow the leading of the Spirit and reaching out to others to care for them because that's the goal of the kingdom, isn't it? Isn't Jesus the one who says he's not willing that any should perish? That he came not to condemn the world, but to save the world? Jesus wants everyone saved. He wants everyone in his kingdom. And the resources he gives us are to be invested in the mission to say whosoever will may come. That's the teaching. These Pharisees, these lovers of money, well, their attitude drive people away from the kingdom. However, wise Christians know how to use their resources for the sake of the kingdom of God. And those wise people draw people in to the kingdom. Friends, you and I must be wise in the use of our resources, always focused on how to do the most possible good to others that they may see the light and be drawn into the kingdom of God. I said at the beginning, at its deepest level, this is a message about fellowship. It's about how will you reuse or invest your resources so that other folks can become more firmly entrenched in the kingdom. How will you invite others into your circle of friendships so that they can see the compassion of Christ and be drawn into the kingdom? How will you take the resources that are yours and deploy them in ways that it will bring people into a knowledge of Jesus Christ? How, how will that happen? I mean, it hasn't been too long in the gospel, in the story that, that Jesus is being condemned for sitting down at the table and eating with sinners, right? That was just like last Sunday, right? People are saying who Jesus is eating with and they're like, uh... But now he's saying, eat with those people. Spend your money to invite them over for food. Invite them into relationship with yourself. Don't be like the Pharisees who separate themselves from those in need. Be wise like the kingdom folks who invest in those who are in need. You might say, Pastor, you know, I would... I would invite people into my home for fellowship if you know, we weren't in the middle of remodeling our dining room and it's a wreck right now and we can't get in there. Or, 
or pastor, I would invite people, but right now our finances are so tight, we just can't afford to bring someone in for a meal, or, or, or pastor, if you only understood, here's what I understand. First of all, popcorn is cheap. That's all you need to serve when you invite people over. And second of all, if for some reason you can't have someone in your home, there are plenty of other places to get together with people. There is Silk City Coffee or other places downtown or the playground out here in front of the church where you and friends can gather and you can bring a bag of popcorn and you can talk and you can be together and you can share life together. This is another building block in the system that says isolation kills us. Fellowship unites us and encourages us. And even if you are an introvert who just doesn't want to be around people all that much, it doesn't lessen your responsibility to encourage others. And you may not be able to do it as much as a person who's extroverted and who naturally is drawn to this kind of fellowship, but you can make strides to building the kind of relationships that will help folks see Christ in you and will be an investment in eternal dwellings, to use Jesus' word here. We've got to take this seriously. This is a, a nitty gritty kind of sermon that just says, where does the rubber re- meet the road? It meets the road in your practice of hospitality and your understanding that Jesus is Lord of all that we are, including our resources. Will we obey his leading? Or will we join the camp of the scribes and Pharisees, hoarding our resources and isolating ourselves from those for whom Christ died? Be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. Use the resources God has entrusted to you to build the kingdom of God so that when you stand at heaven's gates, you'll hear the crowd yelling from inside, look who's coming. It's the one who did this. It's the one who invested here. It's the one who encouraged here. It's the one who led me to Christ here. That's the inheritance we strive to build. Don't build treasures here. Build treasures in heaven where moths do not destroy, where corrosion cannot rust, where thieves cannot steal. Build treasure in heaven for that's the true blessing. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, would you remind us again that Jesus is Lord of all that we are. Would you help us to hear from the Holy Spirit how we are doing with that? And would you encourage us through your living word, which is powerful and active and judges our thoughts and practices to be the kind of folks who will invest in your kingdom for your glory, according to your leadership.
We pray this in the name of Christ. Amen. Would you join me in standing as we sing a song to close together? Let it be said of us that the Lord was our passion, that with gladness we bore every cross we were given, that we fought the good fight, that we finished the course, knowing within us the power of the risen Lord. Let the cross be our glory and the Lord be our song. By mercy made holy, by the Spirit made strong. Let the cross be our glory and the Lord be our song. Till the likeness of Jesus be through us made known. Let the cross be our glory and the Lord be our song. Let it be said of us, we were marked by forgiveness. We were known by our love and delighted in meekness. We were ruled by his peace, eating unity's the cross be our glory and the Lord be our song by mercy made holy by the spirit made strong let the cross be our glory and the Lord be our song till the likeness of Jesus be through us made known let the cross be our And now may we together be useful to the kingdom as we follow the leading of the Holy Spirit to build futures for ourselves in heaven to the glory of God now and forever. Amen. Go in peace.